This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss efforts to reform the physician self-referral law, commonly referred to as Stark Law. With me to discuss the topic is McDermott, Will, and Emery attorney, Amy Hooper Kirby. Ms. Kirby, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Ms. Kirby's bio, of course, is posted on the podcast website. On background, briefly, initially enacted in 1989, the Physician Self-Referral Law, formerly titled the Ethics in Patient Referral Act, commonly again termed Stark Law, after the bill's initial sponsor, Pete Stark, the former longtime Democratic House member from California, prohibits physicians from referring patients to receive quote-unquote designated health services, for example, imaging, lab therapy, or home health services, payable by Medicare or Medicaid from entities with which the physician or an immediate family member has a financial relationship, unless, of course, one of over 30 exceptions apply. The law was or intended to eliminate a physician's financial self-interest and reduce unwarranted or excessive utilization. Over the past several years, Stark has become increasingly viewed as an impediment to care coordination or pay-for-perform models that are designed to financially incent high-value services, and lower spending growth. For example, the 2010 Affordable Care Act gave a CMS rather broad authority to waive Stark and related laws to allow ACOs and bundled payment providers to improve care coordination and continuity of care. The Congress has been considering reforms to Stark uh, for over the past several years. Most recently, or on July 17th, the House Ways and Means Health Subcommittee heard testimony from four experts on reforming or modernizing the physician self-referral law. With me again to discuss Stark is Amy Hooper Kirby. So with that as background, Amy, let me start by asking for context. Can you uh, briefly detail or describe your related work? Sure. I am a healthcare attorney, and uh, within my practice, I advise hospitals, physicians, uh, a whole range of providers, and uh, basically any any type of healthcare marketplace participant on compliance with fraud and abuse laws generally, and in particular the Stark Law as well as the anti-kickback statute. Um, it's close brethren. Um, so these are issues that we we deal with routinely on a day-to-day basis in a whole host of circumstances. Thank you. And just before my next question, my apologies. I did mean to note in the intro, Amy's comments are her own. Let's go to the second question uh, that I've drafted. Uh, What's your sense of how problematic is their current law? For example, hospitals routinely complain now the law, along with its strict liability provision, and I'll ask you to explain that, and related False Claims Act exposure leaves them hesitant to enter into these Uh, pay-for-performance arrangements. I'll also note a common uh, criticism, which is this catch-22, whereby the view is a provider cannot attest, cannot test rather an alternative payment model or pay-for-performance model in the real world without a financial waiver to Stark and anti-kickback laws, Uh, yet these waivers cannot be granted unless there's an approved 
alternative payment model or pay-for-performance model. So those are two commonly held comments or criticisms. But in your sense, how problematic is the current law? How much of an impediment is it to allowing the advance of these um, alternative payment models that are primarily to improve care coordination? Well, there's no question that there is uh, a great deal of, of frustration with the Stark Law and uh, how it has evolved as an enforcement and, and regulatory mechanism. That frustration, I think, is not limited to just the uh, pay-for-performance or value-based care context. It's, it's really broader and more fundamental. The regulatory burden on providers with, um, with respect to compliance with the law at, at a baseline level, even when they are not endeavoring to enter into value-based models or develop them, as you suggest, um, it's a very frustrating law. There is a great deal of ambiguity around a number of the key provisions. And the way that the law is structured is is particularly challenging for providers and participants in the healthcare marketplace. You mentioned the fact that it's uh, a strict liability law. And the implication of that is that um, you know, we talk about the referral prohibition, which is the, the core of, uh, of the Stark Law, that a party uh, may not bill for services that are furnished pursuant to a referral by a physician who has a financial relationship with a DHS entity unless an exception applies. So there's no there's no question of what was the party's intent in contrast, for example, to say the kickback statute, which pro- pro- prohibits paying or offering or receiving kickbacks to induce a re- reward for a referral. The Stark Law is a strict liability statute. If there is a financial relationship, the referral is strictly prohibited unless an exception applies. So you have a a very strict compliance obligation, and the exceptions in many instances are complicated and have a lot of ambiguous terms. The, The terms, frankly, within the referral prohibition itself can be challenging to understand. What is a referral? When when do you have an entity or when is something not an entity? Uh, what is a financial relationship? The definition of ind- indirect compensation arrangement is itself one of the most vexing definitions in all of the Stark Law, and that's before you even get to the question of whether you can meet a corresponding exception. So it's a challenging law to comply with, and the consequences of noncompliance are are truly draconian in terms of not just the the penalties and uh, the refund obligations, but the False Claims Act looms as a tremendously powerful and potent enforcement tool that bears with it proclaimed penalties and trouble damages, and it's become a very um, active enforcement mechanism with respect to Stark Law violations because from either a whistleblower or the government's perspective, they don't have to prove intent with respect to the underlying Stark Law violation, given that it's a strict liability statute, they only have a burden uh, with respect to intent under the False Claims Act. Now, uh, False Claims Act violation itself, i.e., knowledge with respect to the falsity of the claim. So it's it's an appealing um, mechanism for pursuing False Claims Act enforcement. So, from uh, you know a hospital GC standpoint, the general counsel, it is uh, something that certainly can keep them up at night in terms of how are they managing their compliance obligations. And that's before they're even trying to get on the cutting edge with respect to entering into value-based payment models. Okay, thank you. I did mention, as you did as well, these exceptions. I think specifically last I looked, there were 35. I mentioned over 30. Can you just give us an idea of what some of these maybe more noted uh, exceptions are? 
Sure. Well, the exceptions break down into three categories. There are exceptions for investment and ownership interest. There are exceptions for compensation arrangements. And there are what are known as DHS exceptions. DHS is Designated Health Services, which is the the universe of services, healthcare services that are covered by the Stark Law. There are 10 categories. They are pretty broad. Um, And a DHS exception operates to protect from the referral prohibition DHS that are furnished under certain circumstances. So the exceptions uh, run the gamut, necessarily so, because every single type of financial relationship between a physician and an entity to which he or she may make referrals implicates the Stark Law prohibition. So if a hospital sends flowers to a physician, that creates a financial relationship between the physician and the hospital that would prohibit the physician's referrals to the hospital unless an exception is met. In this instance, we would be looking at the non-monetary compensation exception. So there is a pathway by which a party can do it, but it requires an affirmative effort to meet the the requirements of that exception. There are exceptions, obviously, for employment arrangements, for independent contractor arrangements, leases. Um, they, They run the gamut. Uh, there's also, obviously, in the uh, group practice context, a very important exception near and dear to the hearts of, of physician practices in the United States, the in-office ancillary services exception, yes. which is the vehicle by which physicians who have uh, ownership interests in their own physician practices are able to make referrals, for example, if they have a lab or imaging services. Mm-hmm. Their uh, Referrals to their own entities implicate the Stark Law's um, prohibitions, and so the in-office ancillary services exception is the vehicle by which they are able to cover those referrals. The in-office ancillary services exception is among the uh, most challenging exceptions to understand, part of the reason of which is that it is only available to entities that meet the definition of a quote-unquote group practice. And the definition of a group practice is itself so long that it has its own regulation, covers multiple pages. There are eight standards. There are um, you know, varying levels of clarity across those standards. And to be clear, if a, if a group practice fails to hit the, those eight standards, meaning it doesn't meet the definition of a group practice at any particular moment in time, the result of that is they cannot rely on the in-office ancillary services exception to protect the claims that they are submitting to the Medicare program for designated health services. And so all of those claims become overpayments for which they have a refund obligation upon discovering the issue. So it, you, know, you can imagine that that can uh, have a very significant financial impact, and it doesn't matter whether you tried your best. Um, that may matter in your subsequent settlement efforts with CMS, but in terms of the actual question of compliance, it's, it's really just a strict, did you do it correctly or not? And so those, that, that framework is, um, is something that is challenging to work with in a compliance context. And it's also, I think, part of what is contributing to the dialogue now about whether or not the Stark Law is the appropriate regulatory mechanism to address what is understandably a real public policy concern with overutilization and with financial interests influencing physician ordering patterns. Well, I'll pick up on that appropriate. That's an interesting, uh, intriguing comment, whether it's the appropriate regulatory mechanism. My next question you more or less answered, which is, uh, has the law outlived its usefulness? And as an aside, I'll note, Pete Stark is actually on record. Although it's misinterpreted, he, his comment was, 
He'd, he'd like to see the law at least uh, simplified. It certainly has gone, as you've already suggested, incredibly complex, and the regulatory uh, uh, aspects uh, provisions are extensive. So let's go to uh, what might be a fixed uh, to Stark or physician self-referral. Uh, interestingly, um, if you read the testimony this past July 17th by the four experts, uh, I'm sure you probably did take a look at it. I did find it interesting that although all complained about how the law was uh, in some ways antiquated uh, and needed to be improved, no one really enunciated specific reform. Uh, so for an example as, an, as a fix, we do know, as I suggested at the top, the CMS does have, under the ACA, authority to waive some of these uh, stark and related laws for certain payment models, ACOs, amongst others. Would codifying, then, the CMS waivers be helpful? I suspect the answer is yes. I suspect you would say further that would, that would not be sufficient? I think that's probably um, uh, fair to say, yes. There's, there's a lot of talk about uh, possibly... Uh, creating new exceptions that would specifically address alternative payment models, uh, both their development and their implementation. Uh, one of the challenges with that right now is that CMS's authority with respect to adopting new exceptions to the Stark Law is limited by an obligation on the part of the Secretary to conclude that the new exception would would present no risk of program or patient abuse, which is a pretty high standard. And in fact, many of these alternative payment models, it would be hard to say that at the outset. And so there is a a view that absent some type of statutory change, any exception that CMS might come up with would itself likely be cumbersome and and lengthy and include a host of safeguards and inevitable ambiguities that might not actually afford practical relief. They may prove me wrong, and I hope that they do. But um, as a result of that, certainly amongst uh, you know my colleagues and myself in our uh, sidebar discussions on this, from, from the standpoint of potential uh, rulemaking by CMS, and there's been an indication that they are planning to do that. Obviously, the Stark RFI came out, and yes. they've um, Deputy Secretary Hargan has indicated the timeline for a proposed rule uh, by the end of this calendar year. Uh, we think that there's a great deal of um, ambiguity and certainly a lack of quote-unquote bright line rules around some of the, the biggest concepts that inform Stark Law compliance and Congressman Stark himself, and you can look in the congressional record, he said the point of the Stark Law is to establish bright line rules so that physicians know what they're supposed to do and effectively can police their own conduct. And that's really not where we are now. So those big concepts that I'm talking about are the concepts of fair market value compensation, compensation that does not take into account the volume or value of a physician's referrals, and the requirement that arrangements be commercially reasonable. Those three concepts are included in virtually all, not quite all, of the compensation exceptions to the Stark Law. And so meeting those standards is a, is a very fundamental principle of Stark Law compliance. You might expect that given the centrality of those concepts to Stark Law compliance, that there would be an abundance of guidance and standards to, to guide an organization in their efforts to meet their obligations. But there's really not. And uh, that creates challenge. It introduces uncertainty. Um, and those are the three 
concepts that are often directly confronted by value-based payment models. So if you are trying to come up with a metric to uh, incentivize a particular type of performance on the part of a physician and it relates any in any way to the volume or value of resulting services other than services that are personally performed by the physician, you could find yourself with a potential volume value issue and, um, and, and thus be concerned about whether or not that, that compensation arrangement is, meets uh, a stark exception. So uh, we really see these kind of these concepts as areas for for improvement and, and guidance from CMS, and they would be able to do that, you know, with, to provide guidance on those concepts without having to adopt a new exception, um, so arguably are not hamstrung um, by the no risk of abuse standard. Obviously, I don't anticipate CMS would adopt any kind of a, a definition or standard that, um, that they believe would lead to um, any kind of abusive practices, but um, it seems like there's really an opportunity for more definitive guidance there and for um, for curtailing what has emerged as some uh, particularly vexing le legal theories that have been advanced in False Claims Act litigation that are, are troubling for hospitals and providers who are trying to structure deals. Okay, thank you. Let, let me get a bit more specific. I appreciate the fair market value, volume and value of referrals, commercially reasonable, et cetera. So CMS is, is, is going down a path. As you mentioned, they have currently an RFI out on stark comments are due, uh, I believe, August 24th. Uh, the RFA may eventually, as you suggested, do a proposed rule sometime for the end of this calendar year. Let's go to the Congress on legislative reform. The handicap currently is that, in part this being an election year, they won't get to this issue this year, and we have a new Congress next year, which means they more or less... Uh, start over, but that detail aside, what would you say is what's most promising from the legislative side relative to uh, concrete reform? Well, I, I don't know if um, crystal balling in this particular political climate is, is a winning prospect, but there does seem to be, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about issues with the Stark Law, not just this year, but it's been building over the last several years. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Senate Finance Committee has undertaken um, a look at it. There have been roundtable discussions on the Hill. So it, it's something that has been percolating. I think what I am seeing right now is the convergence of, um, of different groups around common themes, if you will. So you have, uh, you know, the health policy community that has been really trying to drive the transformation to value-based care. And you have a, um, a current administration that has embraced deregulation as a policy objective in its own right. And I think the two are converging right now. And so we see um, a lot of talk about the need for uh, to change the Stark Law in the interest of promoting care coordination and alternative payment models and so forth. And they have found, I think, compatriots amongst the deregulation uh, crowd. And so it, it does seem like there may be a greater opportunity for something to actually happen right now. You know, what, what, the Hill is going to do or not do in the context of an election year. This is probably, um, while a change to the Stark Law would be something that would be headline news, certainly for the health law bar um, and for those of us who, um, who otherwise focus on these issues, I don't know that it's really a stump speech kind of issue. So I don't know how that plays out in terms mm -hmm. of 
priorities, but there's definitely an interest, and um, and I think that there's an interest, as I say, beyond just uh, those offices on the Hill that are traditionally very deeply acquainted and interested in health policy issues. There are others who are responding to um, basic messages of this has become, this is an example of excessive regulation that has, as, as we said, perhaps outlived its purpose and, and needs a major update, and you could really provide meaningful regulatory relief to this um, segment of the marketplace. So it, it, it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. You know, uh, per the, this is not a necessarily stump speech material, though I'm sure you're probably well aware CMS has started using this phrase uh, in this, uh, uh, can be applied in this context, and that is they've launched this regulatory sprint to coordinated care. And this uh, evidently fits or falls under uh, that idea. You did mention, uh, going back to the appropriate regulatory mechanism, I, I, I did find interesting in the Stark RFI, they ask a set of approximately 20 questions for stakeholders to comment, uh, one of which discusses the possibility of this being addressed by improvements in transparency. And you're probably aware CMS is putting increasing resources and profile to this issue of making data transparent to the Medicare beneficiary. Uh, This RFI asks, uh, please share your thoughts on the role of transparency in the context of physician self-referral. For example, if provided by the referring physician to the beneficiary, would transparency about a physician's financial relationships, price transparency, or the availability of other data necessary for informed consumer purchasing reduce or eliminate the harms to the Medicare program and its beneficiaries that the physician self-referral law is intended to address. So there is, you can connect the dots uh, to these two issues. What discussion have you heard, if any, about how this might uh, be addressed, at least in part through sort of CMS is going further down the road on and making uh, Medicare information more transparent to the Benny? Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a valid question. Um, it, does transparency adequately or meaningfully address what is otherwise a risk of um, abusive practices? You know, if the beneficiary is informed of a provider's financial interest, does the beneficiary then um, make a more informed decision? You know, you could you could talk. You could write a book about that question, I think, quite frankly. There are a lot of you – know, the, the consumer – my view is that the consumer decision-making process in the context of a doctor-physician relationship is just different from the consumer decision-making process with respect to many other goods or services. There is um, – there are, are cultural norms and um, concepts of trust and judgment that inform the relationship between a, a patient and a physician as they should. And I, I, I think that you have to understand and consider the value and role of transparency through that lens. It's not just the same uh, reading like a Consumer Reports article about a particular type of vehicle versus another vehicle. Uh, the the doctor-physician relationship, sorry, the uh, patient-physician relationship has uh, has been long understood to be different in nature. And uh, that's not to say that I don't think transparency has a role. I think it, it, it does. And certainly now as we have new means of disseminating information, you know, particularly through the, the internet, um, people are 
seeking value in that information. But information on its own um, without context doesn't necessarily um, provide the average consumer with enough information to act on it. You know, they, it just um, a data point in, in the dark is, is somewhat meaningless and could be construed in, in ways that aren't necessarily adequate to address what might otherwise be um, a policy concern regarding overutilization or inappropriate patient steering. So, you know, it's a, it's a good question. Candidly, I have not heard a lot of discussion around the, um, the role of transparency as, as a big feature of why, where stark relief might come. But that's not to say that it might not be the focus or certainly incorporated into whatever relief CMS might be trying to develop. Okay, thank you. You're right. The research literature on making data transparent, particularly the Medicare bennies, has not proven to be uh, all that supportive or positive. Let me just ask one last question. There are obviously many aspects uh, to Stark, but one that's uh, possibly bullseye is we know with these payment models, alternative payment models, they're oftentimes uh, included in these formulas gain sharing. This is where, for example, under a bundled payment arrangement, a hospital uh, can gain share when they're success with a patient with, say, their, um, that Benny's uh, ACO if they're assigned to uh, such. What? Uh, so this is on point. This is obviously gain sharing. It would be an inherent conflict or problem under Stark. How do we marry the two, uh, allowing for gain sharing uh, while recognizing uh, what Stark is trying to address? Well, gain sharing has certainly been um, a focus. UCMS had a proposed rule, a proposed gain sharing exception that was not finalized. It was, um, I think, an exemplar of um, a particularly complicated lengthy exception that um, because of the inherent risks in a gain sharing model, and they obviously felt the need to apply a a long range of safeguards to address against potential abuse. Um, The the fact that there's been some relief on um, the inducement statute, uh, you know, it used to be that inducements to physicians to reduce care to Medicare beneficiaries were prohibited, even if it was medically unnecessary care, uh, and that there has been some relief from that uh, statutorily, so I think that addresses a piece of the gain-sharing puzzle. Um, I think that I, I would not be surprised to see something um, in the proposed rule that specifically targets gain-sharing um, uh, from a stark standpoint. Uh, it just it seems it's been around for such a, such a long time that, and they have obviously given a great deal of thought to it mm-hmm. already, so they, they're not starting from scratch. So I wouldn't be surprised to see something there. Okay, Amy, we're uh, at our time boundary, uh, so let me say I thank you again for, for uh, this opportunity to discuss this incredibly complicated uh, subject. Um, obviously, the joke on this topic is this uh, law, and what we have three phases of Stark, I believe, has kept attorneys... Uh, very busy for several decades. So with any luck, maybe we get this better clarified and allow for uh, what the argument is, these um, models to coexist with however Stark gets reformed. So thank you again, Amy, for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, To suggest a program topic or to hear an archive program, 
please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.